Oh, my goodness. Well, good morning. It is great to see you. I got to tell you, it was an easy decision to come out and preach here at Compass uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it is nice to see the sun. And um, uh, two, this is uh, just a great joy for me because I have been uh, watching this ministry, highly influenced by this ministry, highly influenced by Pastor Mike, his books, and I've read many of them, and uh, just so privileged to open God's Word with you today. So let's do that. Let's take our Bibles. Let's open to Psalm 46. We are in Psalm 46 today, and we're going to exposit the Scriptures together. Hey, as you're turning there, I like the story of the young man who decided to go get cleaned up with an old-fashioned haircut and shave. You know, the kind where they they lay you back and they use a straight razor. Uh, He decided to go ahead and have one of those done, and so he went into the shop, and about halfway through, the haircut is done. The barber lays him back for the shave. He notices that uh, the assistant is uh, attractive. And the young man says, I'm going to ask this young lady, I'm going to muster up the courage, I'm going to ask her out for a date. And so that's exactly what he does. He asks her out, but her response is, uh, listen, I'm, I can't, I'm married. I'm sorry, I can't do it. Well, the young wolf says, um, well, that's no problem for me. Go ahead and call your husband and tell him, tell him that you're going to be late. The next words that came out of her mouth, her, her mouth shocked him, words that I'm sure he would never forget. Why don't you tell him yourself? He's the one shaving your neck. Have you ever experienced that moment of sheer terror in your life? There do come those moments where you don't feel safe, and unfortunately, this is a world that produces shock and awe moments just like that all the time. For some of us, it's because of a boneheaded decision, something you've done, something you have uh, made happen in your life. You get yourself into those sticky situations. For others of us, friends, it's just a fallen world. It's just a broken world. We are a Genesis 3 world living under a curse, and therefore we will have problems in this life, and it will come to us all. It's not a matter of if you will suffer. It's not a matter of if you will experience trials. It's a matter of when and how will they come. For some of you, it's the doctor's report. report. You will go to your doctor, and you'll be like a friend of mine. He came into my office, one of the pastors on our staff. He came in, sat down, and said, Pastor Matt, I've got to end my employment. I've got to retire. I said, why? Why? He said, I've got stage, stage four pancreatic cancer. You'll hear that word from a doctor, and it will be a moment of shock and awe. And you'll say, I don't feel safe. Cancer. Cancer is something that other people get. I'm not supposed to get cancer. And you'll feel it. For others of you, it's your future. You're, you're watching the contracting of the economy. You're watching your friends being removed from their posts. Maybe they're moving out of state, going and taking other jobs, and you're watching your business. You're watching things here in California. You're watching your personal life, and you're wondering, how will I provide for my family? How will I make an income? How will I take care of my children? And you're concerned, and you, and you, you say that moment, just like that young man, I don't feel safe. Others of you, you're watching our nation. You're watching elections, you're watching $28 trillion in debt go to $30 trillion in debt, you're watching decisions that are being made, you're watching things in life, and you're saying, my, my elected officials don't make me feel safe. We feel that, don't we? And unfortunately, what happens is when you start feeling that, you tend to hide in all the wrong places. I do too. You and I tend to hide in all the wrong places. We'll hide in family, we'll hide in friends, we'll hide in finances. 
We will say that these things will take care of me. And if COVID-19 has proved anything, it's, it's really exposed all the poor hiding places of life, your friends, your family, everybody's in isolation. And then we get to a place where even you can have all the finances in the world and all the money in the world can't buy toilet paper at moments that you need it to. <laughs> Turns out money's a very poor hiding place. True story, I was talking to a friend that I just met who plays the piano from Ukraine, and I wanted to share this story of a friend of mine who went to the Ukraine. He went on a mission trip and saw something that he said was just burned into his mind's eye. He said, I went on the mission trip, and at night on this mission trip in the Ukraine, this guy brought out this big bowl of soup, hooked it over a place where he'd start the fire. But to start the fire, he went back into the room of his house, went into the safe, opened the safe up, pulled out big bundles of bills, Ukrainian bills, and started the fire with bills. And the guy said, what are you, what are you doing? He said, at the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia took everything. I worked my entire life for a retirement saved up bundles of bills, a safe full of bills, and when they pulled out, the economy collapsed. The currency was worth nothing. Now I'm starting my meal, the fire with my meal, with these dollar bills. Turns out money is a very poor place to hide. You and I tend to look for a hiding place, and we hide in all the wrong places. Friends, I'm convinced that the reason we hide so poorly is because we live and we see a man-sized God when we should see a God-sized God. Uh, let me say it this way. This is uh, maybe a good uh, addressing of our need of our hearts. Uh, a man-sized God will bring about in your life God-sized anxieties. If you have a man-sized God, you will have God-sized anxieties. Today, I, I thought about the best thing that I could do for you coming to Compass, and uh, the best thing I could do is show you who God is, show you that there is a hiding place, show you that there is a place of safety, a refuge for you. So I've entitled my sermon today, Welcome to Strongsville. Now, this is a series that I did in Tennessee. I'm from Collierville, Tennessee, uh, Central Church in Collierville, Tennessee, and uh, we did a series called Welcome to Strongsville. You might be wondering, where does that come from? When I was in Ohio, uh, there was a little town up north in Ohio called Strongsville, and I always loved the, the, the sound of that town. Where do you live, kid? Uh, I live in Strongsville. I'm living in Strongsville, and, and that's where I want to live in the Christian life. In fact, I'm convinced that that's what the New Testament calls us to. In fact, you might write down a few of these passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, it says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to to establish you and exhort you in your faith. That word establish is the word sterizo. That one word kept Barry Bonds, Roger Clements out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Steroid, ster sterizo. I want to establish you. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. God commands this, that you ought to be strong, but your strength is not going to be found by hiding in your own hiding places. It's in the Lord, in the strength of his might. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. One of my elders at, at uh, Central Church, uh, he sends emails, and at the end of every email, he has this as his life verse. Be strong. Be strong and courageous. Be strong, fearless. Act like men. That's the idea. 2 Timothy 2, 1, you then, my child, be strengthened 
by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I love this one because the verb is passive. Uh, Be strengthened. This verse is asking you to do something that has to be done for you. God must do it, so go do that. Wrap your mind around that. You and I need to be strengthened, and if we're going to find strength, if we're ever going to make it to Strongsville, we've got to come to the Lord and see Him as our refuge. So today, what I want to do is I want to look at Psalm 46, and I want to show you that God is a hiding place, a strong hiding place for His people. So let's do this. We do this at my church. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. This is what Ezra did in Nehemiah 8. He had the people stand. They built this platform. He stood on the platform, read from the text, and explained the text, gave the sense at the people's standing. And so I want to do that in honor of God's Word. It says this in chapter 46, Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let me stop there. How many of you are experiencing the trouble of life right now? Let's just see a show of hands. How many of you are walking through some trouble? I'm troubled. I'm going to put both hands up, right? Uh, Let's just say this together uh, and just repeat after me. This is for me. Oh, come on. Give me some gusto. This is for me. This is for for us. If you're in trouble, this is for me. This is for you. This is what it says. Therefore, We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Before you sit down, this is the whole sermon today. I want to help you get to Strongsville. Strongsville is not the absence of trouble. Strongsville is the confidence of God and the confidence in God. It's knowing who God is. And that's what this passage is all about. I want to work through it. I want you right now, look down at it. There's three sections to this passage. They're they're all related to who God is, and the sections are divided with that little word, selah. Do you see that word there in your text? Selah. What does that mean? Well, it's transliterated. We don't quite know. Some people think that uh, it means halal, yah, praise the Lord, praise, la, uh, praise Yahweh, the abbreviation for Yahweh. Some people think it means, think it means look up, uh, sort of a musical annotation, look up, meditate, uh, all of those things. It, look, it could mean snorkel for all I know, all right? <laughs> but I think it really serves us well in giving us three divisions, three things that the Lord will be to you in the midst of your trial. So no matter what you're going through, this is to show you that God is enough in the midst of the trials and the turbulent waters of life. So may God 
bless the reading and the preaching of his word, and may God's people be blessed through it. You may be seated. Back in May 23rd of, of 1939, the USS Squalus was out on patrol. Actually, it was its maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. As it was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, disaster struck. An induction valve failed, and it started taking on water, and immediately 26 sailors perished in those front compartments. The remaining sailors sort of turned, uh, closed the, the, the different sections of the ship off, and they all piled into one section as the sub sank to the bottom of the ocean. It was a hopeless moment. This is an artist's rendering of what that moment must have felt like for those soldiers, for those sailors. Bottom of the sea. And in those days, it was a well-known fact that if you sank in a submarine, there was absolutely no hope of rescue. You would die a slow, torturous death in the cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean. One guy, one of the sailors, as they were sitting down there, eventually stood up to his feet. He, um, he took a can of oil and walked over to the latrine, the toilet, and started pouring it in and just flushing it out to sea over and over and over again. The, uh, the fellow soldier said, what are, you, what are you doing? This is hopeless, and that's not going to help. What are you doing? The uh, soldier said, that oil is going to go out, and it's going to float to the top of the water, and it's going to mark the location where we all died and perished. And eventually, the ships will come and eventually, they'll raise the ship or they'll recover our bodies and give us a proper burial. I need that for my family. Sure enough, the ships came to the area. Not only did, did they come, they actually sent down divers into the Atlantic Ocean. They went all the way down to the submarine. And the closer they got, they got right up next to the submarine and they heard the taps. It was Morse code. The sailors were giving Morse code, and they kept asking the same question over and over and over again. This was their question. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Some of you are in that season of life where that's your question today. Is there hope for my marriage? Is there hope for my prodigal son, my prodigal daughter? Is there hope for me in the midst of disease? Is there hope for my future? Is there hope for my family? And what the psalmist is going to encourage us to do is to look up. We need to see the hope of God in God. And so let me take you to Strongsville. Three reasons that the people of God have hope in dark days. Let's develop some muscular faith here for just a minute. Three points this morning if you're taking notes. Our first point is that we need to trust God Trust that God is a refuge in disaster. And we see that in the first three verses. Trust that God is a refuge in disaster. I want you to notice in verse 1, he's a very present help in trouble. Now, the question comes as you study this passage, what is the trouble? What is the trouble that we're thinking about? What is the trouble in question? Honestly, I don't know. Um, the passage is somewhat vague. We don't quite know the situation. Many commentators have uh, studied this passage I think it was John Calvin and several other commentators who have suggested that this was probably happening around the time of the siege of Sennacherib, 
And uh, one of the priests, one of the sons of Korah is remembering that and singing about that, developing this song. And it's certainly a fit for all of the hopeless imagery. Back in 701, 722, uh, Sennacherib came with his army and he came from Assyria. He came down through Israel and they came on the land like a plague of locusts, just conquering city after city after city. 46 cities uh, fell. He sieged 46 cities And one right after another came crashing to the ground. They took around 200,000 Israeli slaves. And uh, over in Habakkuk, we see a picture of that. Uh, Habakkuk the prophet shows that Israel was helpless, like fish. And uh, this is a historical event. They would literally lead them away in chains. They would literally drive hooks through the jaws of their captives and slaves and pull them away into captivity. Very dark days. Very hopeless times. I think this story might happen with King Hezekiah. As Sennacherib comes, there's one city left. It's the city of God. It's Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem's gates, as you remember. He comes with an interpreter. This interpreter says it so that all the people of Israel would hear what he's saying and what he's communicating to King Hezekiah. And Sennacherib says, look, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. This is as hopeless as hopeless can be. All of the other cities fell. You're just the next city on the list. Their gods couldn't save them. Your God won't save you. This is hopeless. And you remember the rest of the story. This was a big moment in the Old Testament. It was recorded in three different places. It was recorded with Isaiah the prophet, 2 Chronicles 32, 2 Kings 18 and 19, recorded in three different places. And what happens is Hezekiah in 2 Kings, he takes the matter, this message from King Sennacherib to all of Israel, and he goes to the temple and he spreads the matter before the Lord. He prays. And what happens next is that God answers his prayer in an amazing way. He sends one angel, like one, count it, one angel, and this one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian troops. And so Israel wakes up the next day, and there's all these bodies on the battlefield around Jerusalem. And some people propose that could be the event of Psalm 46. Whatever it is, this is a national emergency. This is a problem of life and what the psalmist is saying that no matter the destruction you're seeing in your life, God is a safe place to hide. He's a refuge and that's our first point. Friends, it's not the absence of trouble, it's the confidence of God. You need a God-sized God. You need to know a God-sized God. Let's unpack that. Let's see the God who is a refuge that never fails. First of all, he's a strong refuge. Write that down. He's a strong refuge. Notice in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. The word refuge here is mahase uh, in Hebrew. Um, that's the root word for a, uh, a place that means the fortress or the strong place. In fact, if you've been to Israel, how many of you have hiked Masada? How many of you, let's just see a show of hands. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hiked it up, and then I took the, uh, I took the, the trolley thing, the thing on the cable, back down, all right? But uh, that's quite a hike, 1,500 feet up in the air in elevation. It's this mesa. It's this fortress. Uh, Herod called it uh, Masada, a derivative of this word. It is um, a place of refuge. It's a strong place. In fact, it was so strong, if you look on the other side of the mesa, there's this place. That's the snake path, and you can see sort of the, uh, the gondola there, but you can see the snake path going up. About three archers could defend this whole city of 900 people. 
three archers. It was powerful. It was strong. They had enough food and water to last four years under Roman siege. And there's all these apocryphal stories of the, um, of the Israelites who were being sieged there, how they had an excess of food and water for 900 people. An excess. And there's all these crazy stories of, of them, like the, the Romans are out in the desert, like dying of thirst, and the Israelites were like taking water and dumping it over the wall, saying, we've got too much. We've we just got too much water in the desert. And they were like ridiculing the Romans. And... Uh, But that's what God is in the midst of a siege. God is a strong place that you can hide and you can run to. He will be safety and refreshment to you. Not only is he a strong refuge, he's an available refuge. Write that down. He's an available refuge. Love this term. A very present help in trouble. That's the help from of old, or you could translate it, uh, a found help. I like that even better. He's a found help. Anybody looking for a place to hide, God is out in the open waiting. He is an easily found help. He's there for you, there when you need him, there for you to run to. I like those two words, in trouble. This reminds us not to embrace the idea of Christian karma. It reminds us not to embrace the prosperity gospel. There's a, there's a, a picture of Christianity, a false gospel that's out there that says that if you'll just come to Jesus, you'll never experience any of the trials of life. You'll have no problems. You'll never have a miscarriage. You'll never be frustrated in life. You'll have a great job. You'll get the best parking spot at pavilions, all right? If you'll just come to Jesus, everything will be great, hunky-dory. No. Uh, The Bible tells us that believers suffer sometimes worse than unbelievers. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 31, what we see is the the pre-story, the pre-siege of of Jerusalem with Hezekiah. And in chapter 31, verse 20, it says this, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and faithful before the Lord his God. Three awesome terms. He's living a great life. He's, He's following the Lord. This is the summary. Next slide. It says this, and every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. And you would think that the next verse that would come after that background would be, so God gave him wealth, God gave him prosperity with his city, God gave him health, God gave him long vacations, and they just put in an in and out right next to his house. Amen. It's not what happens. It's like, guys, turn the page. What is the next page? It says this, after these things, after what things? All the, the acts of faithfulness, these acts of faithfulness, King Sennacherib, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. What do we learn from that? We learn that trials will come, but even in the midst of them, God is going to be faithful and God is going to protect you. God is going to keep you. He's going to give you grace in the midst of the fight and the trial of your life. God doesn't rescue us. He doesn't rescue Daniel from the lion's den, but he's faithful to Daniel in and through the lion's den. Amen? He doesn't rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, but he's faithful in and through the fiery furnace. He doesn't rescue David from the valley of the shadow of death, but he's faithful in and through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's what God will be for his people. Third, not only is he an available refuge, and a strong refuge. He's a peace-providing refuge. 
peace providing. And I want you just to pause and reflect when you go to Israel. And I hope you do. I saw that Compass is going next year. You ought to do that. But when you go to Israel, what you'll notice is that all these cities are like right next to each other. They're really close. Uh, Just a short distance uh, walking between cities. And so just imagine the psychological warfare as this army is coming down, capturing city after city after city. There is smoke in the air. You smell the city in front of you burning. You hear the war cries, the screams. You hear the siege weapons hitting the walls of that city. You hear it. You feel it. There's all sorts of psychological warfare that's happening on the battlefield as your nation is being defeated. And yet look at verse 2. There's this shout of defiance. We will not fear. Is he in denial? No, he knows who God is. That's the issue. If you have a man-sized God, you're going to have God-sized anxieties. But if you have a God-sized God, it dispels fear. Look at verse 2. We shall not fear, though the earth gives way. Look at the impossible moment. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is cataclysmic destruction on a level that you and I cannot fully comprehend. I grew up in Oklahoma. There were tornadoes that came through Oklahoma City, and it was amazing. Some years, year after year, it hit the same neighborhood. And I'm thinking to myself, I will never live in Oklahoma City. That's crazy. What we're picturing here is far more than the devastation of a tornado that rips a house off the foundation. This is far worse. It's like the mountains aren't even safe. We're taking a whole mountain, throwing it into the heart of the sea. They're not safe. God is showing that there's only one safe hiding place, and he's saying that no matter what the devastation of your life is, God will be faithful, and he can handle it. He can handle it. So are you here longing for a place to hide? Here's where Strongsville begins. If you want to get to Strongsville, it begins by transferring our trust to God as our refuge. This is telling us there is one safe place to turn. You need to turn your your panic into prayer. You need to turn to the Lord. And even though everything in this life fails, you need to turn to a God who will never, ever, ever fail in the midst of your chaos and your trouble. Like Hezekiah, let's turn our panic into prayer and worship that God is all of these things to us. He is a refuge first and foremost. Preach that to yourself. Second, second, we first, we remember that we need to trust that God is a refuge in trial. Second, we need to realize that God is a resource when empty. And that's what we see in verses 4 to 7. There's a new metaphor. There's a new image. All right, we just finished the first Selah. This is the second one. Now there is a river. There's a river. What's that about? Well, if you know anything about history and you know anything about these major cities, ancient cities, Jerusalem is one of the most ancient cities in the whole world. And in that city, there's no river at all, which is really odd because most ancient cities had a river. The river was that thing that allowed you to uh, be sustained through a siege. You're brought fish, you're brought water. If you don't have water, you just can't survive. No river, no hope. And yet here we're talking about a river. When the Assyrians came to Jerusalem, they took one look at that city and they said, this is going to be a piece of cake. They won't be able to last 40 days. They're going to die of thirst. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know there is a water source inside of Israel, isn't there? 
There's Hezekiah's tunnel, which we find out he dug, and it's really an amazing feat of uh, construction. They started digging at opposite ends. They tunneled through 1,777 feet of uh, limestone and rock, and they met in the middle. Now, there's one little dog leg where they had to kind of meet up if you've been through that. Uh, but it's an amazing, amazing thing. They brought water from the Gihon Spring, uh, and they brought that inside of the city so that within the city, there's a water source just flowing and gushing cold, fresh water all the time. That could be what we're talking about here, but there's no river in Jerusalem. I think that he's actually giving a spiritual truth that in the midst of your trial, God is going to be sustaining and life-giving and refreshing to you in a way that unbelievers have no idea what we are experiencing Beloved, if you feel surrounded and tired and weary, everything that that Gihon spring was to Israel in Jerusalem, God is promising to be that spiritually. What it was to them physically, God is promising this will be true for you spiritually. Notice the resources of God in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us. I love that term, Lord of armies. Uh, Martin Luther in his hymn, Lord Sabaoth, his name, Lord of armies. What kind of armies? Angel armies. One angel, 185,000 Assyrians. He's got an army of these things. This is no problem. Your greatest trial. Just let that refresh you uh, this morning. Let that refresh you. God has an army of angels at his disposal to help you through life's trials. He has all the resources that you need. Don't miss this. Look at verse 4. Look at that word streams. Highlight it, circle it, underline it. There's a river, and then there's like these tributaries off the river that direct you back to the river. I think that's a picture of the people of God. These streams that, that come off as, as resources and tributaries of God's grace, that, that you and I as a community, there will be these dispensaries of God's grace that point each other back to the Lord. And I think that the, what that means isn't, isn't the city itself, even an idea of community, but I think what this means is that the grace of God is going to be there for you in the fight. God himself will refresh you, but then there's these, these streams coming off off the river, and I think that's poetic imagery about the community of God. This is why you need to be in a small group. This is why you need to be in community, in this place. This is why you need to gather here as the people of God to encourage one another all the more as you see the day of his return approach, approaching. We need to be in God's community. God uses his people to direct his people back to himself. God uses his people to refresh his people. God is a refreshment to his people, and then he uses each other. He uses the one another's of Scripture to help us be refreshed. I was talking with Mark, and uh, a while back, we were taking a class together at Midwestern, and um, during that time on Midwestern's campus, they have this thing called the, the Spurgeon Library, and um, I'm in awe of Spurgeon. I can't quite grow the beard uh, that he had, but I'm in awe of him. And uh, as we got the tour, as we got the tour of this place, it, there were a couple of moments where I was genuinely emotional. Um, they have all these relics from Spurgeon's life, half of his books. They have his preaching rail uh, from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Kansas City. Who stole that? How did they get that? 
But, but the thing that really did it for me was they had, they had the desk where he prepared all of his sermons. And they said, and this, this really touched me because I know what this feels like, they said that this desk, he would be hunched over, struggled with depression, struggled with all sorts of anxieties in life, and he would be hunched over this desk, just laying on this desk Saturday night, preparing his sermon for Sunday, and he would just be weeping and just crying, I can't do this, I can't keep going, this is so hard, life is so hard, and I can't do this. And his godly wife, Susanna, would come in, physically take him, pick him up and put him, and he was a big guy, she was a strong lady, she'd, she'd pick, him, pick him up, literally put him in his chair and say, you can do this, man of God. He will give you the grace to finish. You can do this. He will give you all the grace that you need. You will preach a sermon tomorrow. It will be fire. You will preach to the glory of God. You can do this. And the second thing, the second thing that genuinely got me emotional was at Midwestern, they had the main exhibit at the very back of the room, center stage. They had this floor-to-ceiling portrait. I took a picture of it. Massive oil painting that they had commissioned. The original just had Spurgeon in it. But Midwestern said the influence of this man's wife to help him do ministry was so powerful. They had her painted into the painting with her hand on his shoulder as a statement saying, this is why this guy was so powerful. God used the grace, the stream of this woman in his life to be a dispensary of hope, to direct him back to the Lord. Why do you need to be in a small group in a gospel-believing, expository preaching place like this right here? Why do you need to connect to the body here? It's because you need a community of God doing just that in your life. You've got to have it. God uses his people to strengthen and uplift and encourage his people. He will be a fountain to you, and he will use his people to direct you back to himself. And notice who this is, this, this is for. Notice in verse 7, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The God of Jacob. This is for people who know that they're weak. Why, why the God of Jacob? Why not the God of Israel? Why not the God of Abraham, the man of faith? Why Jacob of all people? Jacob was weak. Jacob's not living in Strongsville, Right? Jacob was liar, manipulator, deceiver. Like, if I'm picking neighbors, I'd rather have Esau than Jacob. Esau was a nice guy. This God of refuge is for those who know how weak they are. Jacob knew his weaknesses. And you will only be safe when you know how weak you are and you hide in God. So, beloved, you need to understand that in the midst of your trial, God is promising to sustain you like this secret spring from within. He's going to use the streams of the people of God and the, ser the servants in the city of God to refresh you. So are you here today 
discouraged? Are you here today like Spurgeon, depressed? Are you here today feeling surrounded at the bottom of the ocean like a surrounded city? Are you here today dealing with cancer or conflict or prodigal son or failure or loss or, or an uncertain future? Beloved, let this put steel in your spine for whatever you have to face this week. Our God is a refreshing refuge. Amen? If God is for us, who can be against us? We need to live knowing that. Last point and we're done. Last point. First of all, we need to trust that God is a refuge and we need to hide in him. We need to transfer our trust. Second, we need to realize that God is a resource when we're empty. And when we know that, we will often be refreshed by him and sometimes through the people of God. And lastly, we need to rest assured that God is a ruler over rebels. As you look around this world, you can see a lot of people who are against God, a lot of people who are against you, a lot of people who are dangerous and out of control. We need to constantly come back to the sovereignty of God. You've got to preach this to yourself. Something bad comes in my life, the statement that's constantly on the tip of my tongue, it's all good. Romans 8, it's all good. God's going to turn this for good. He's even in the process of doing that in my life now. It's a present good. It's conforming me to the image of Christ. In verse 8, it says, come, come, behold the works of the Lord. I love this. Behold. Why do we need to behold? Why do we need to consider and remind? Because very simple principle, whatever you feed grows, whatever you starve dies. You might write that down. Whatever you feed grows, whatever you starve dies. If you feed your faith with reminders, your faith will grow. If you are constantly reminding yourself of the sovereignty of God, preaching it to yourself, preaching it to other people, your faith will grow. What you feed grows, what you starve dies. If you do not preach this to yourself and inform your desires, affections, and thoughts with this truth, you are vulnerable. Your faith will diminish. Your confidence will die. We need to remind ourselves. We need to behold the word and the works of the Lord. Notice the two things here that we behold. You might underline and highlight that word desolation in the text. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. Desolation, what's that referring to? Well, I mean, it, it, could, be, it could be the dead Assyrians on the battlefield. You know, if you're worried about the bad guys, just look around. 185,000 Assyrians lying dead on the battlefield, and Sennacherib has tucked tail and run. Just, just think about that. Or it could be the charred cities of all those 46 cities in Israel that came crashing down. God's, it doesn't matter which one, maybe both. God is sovereign over both. The good guys who lose, the bad guys who are winning up until the day of Revelation 19 where God comes to set all things right. He's sovereign. He is the judge. And that gives us peace. We're to look at the desolation. Also, we're to look at his power to disarm. Look at verse 9, three very important terms. He makes wars cease. What a thought. He's the one who's actually sovereign over the wars brewing in our world. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Three different terms about the power of man at play in this world. And really, they're just like toys to God. They're nothing to God. He breaks them all. He destroys them all. He causes them to cease. So, beloved, we need to rest in that truth that God is sovereign over your boss who is mean to you, your future that is uncertain, your house payment, how will it be made? He's sovereign over all of that, and God is not panicked over COVID-19. Amen? 
there is no gasp coming from the throne of heaven. Amen? I like what my friend Philip DeCourcy says. Uh, he, he is constantly drawing us back. He says that, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? <laughs> helpful. Very helpful. Whether it's the elections that happen or the diagnosis that comes to your door or the child that has walked away from the Lord or the marriage that's teetering and tottering, God is a safe place to hide. And God is sovereign, therefore you can live in peace and you can rest. What would it, what would it look like if we applied this to our life today? Let me just give you a couple things to write down. Number one, I think Strongsville it begins with admitting your dependency. You and I need to, this week, right now, before we leave this room, we need to admit that we are absolutely dependent on the Lord. We've got to stop hiding in our own resources. Some of you need to repent, and you need to, really, it's an issue of unbelief. The reason you're hiding so poorly is because you don't really believe that God is a refuge. You need to repent of that today. You need to do what Hezekiah did. You need to turn your panic into prayer. We need to be like Jacob, poor and needy before our God. Some of you just need to admit that this week, the things coming your way, you cannot handle them. That's where it begins. And then out of that, out of application of that truth, you need to regather in this place. You need to come back to this place. You need to be known in the community of God. You need to engage with the classes that are offered. You need to engage in the small groups. You need to be here. And let this place, let this people refresh you and point you back to the one who is your refuge. Number two, I think that this passage really encourages us to preach that topic of sovereignty to one another and our own hearts. God is sovereign. Like friends, remind yourself of the past victories in your life. I mean, how many other times has God come through for you for crying out loud? He is constantly sustaining his people. I haven't missed, I can't remember the last time I missed a meal. He's been faithful. I know nothing except his faithfulness. And he will continue to be faithful. And yes, man, our, our government's messed up. And yeah, we're adding another $2 trillion to the national debt. And we don't know what the future looks like. And, and yeah, the economy might eventually get bad, and yeah, the jobs may go somewhere else, and I don't know what's coming, but I do know this, God is faithful no matter what comes. And the bad guys lose, Revelation 19, he's going to set all things right, he's coming to right all the wrongs, so, so preach that to yourself, preach that to each other. Friends, God is sovereign, that means the people of God can experience the peace of God. Last, certainly not least, Strongsville I think this passage directs us that as we end it, Strongsville ends with being born again. There's actually an altar call. In fact, there's a verse, verse 10. It's sort of out of place. It says this. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What is this? Be still and know that I'm God. My mom had this cross stitch like on the wall of our home, all right? This contemplative, uh, be still and know that I'm God. Be still. Isn't that beautiful? But who's that talking to? 
I, I don't think he's talking to Christians. I don't think he's talking to believers. Actually, this is not the language of contemplation. This is the language of command. He's talking to those who are causing the war. It's to the rebels. He's saying, stop warring, stop roaring, stop foaming, right? Stop, be still. It's command. Cut it out. Literally, in the Hebrew, have drooping arms. Have arms that fall. Lay down your arms. This is an altar call for those who have no refuge. And in a group this size, I know that there's some of you who are not hiding in the refuge of Jesus Christ. That's where real life begins. That's the only way you will be able to be sustained through this hard life. If you're not a Christian, this is exactly what you need to do. You need to run to the rock of ages. You need to run to Jesus Christ who died, suffered for your sins, rose from the dead. He was truly God, truly man. He became a sacrifice for all the sins that you ever committed. You need to transfer your trust. Stop looking inward at yourself. Stop trying to be a good person to sort of earn and bribe God with with his favor by your deeds. You need to look away from yourself. You need to look to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Hide yourself in him. And when you hide yourself in him, you will be safe not only in this life, you will be safe forever throughout the ages. Amen? And if you knew this king, if you bowed the knee to this king today, you would be safe and you would have a refuge. And that's where it must begin. Are you here today without hope? That's how it was for the USS Squalus. Soldiers, sailors, bottom of the ocean, and in that day, It was an accepted fact that if you sank, you would not be saved. Bottom of the ocean. They were without hope. But there was a guy named Charles Momsen. He brought a lot of hope. He invented this device, this bell-shaped object that would be sent down on a series of cables down to the very bottom of the ocean. It would attach itself to the, the hatch on top of the sub and one by one, as these sailors would enter into the vessel and they would, put, they would transfer their trust from the sinking sub to this object, Charles Momsen brought them all to the surface and saved 33 souls that day. Isn't that fun? Yeah, what a savior. Saved 33 souls. When Jesus came down, He saved billions. And all who transfer their trust to him are safe, not only in the raging of this life, but forever. I'm here today with my wife, Ashley. And uh, I always love coming and preaching with with Ashley, my family, my three kids. And um, I always love for people to meet Ashley. They always think better of me somehow after they meet Ashley. And uh, she's here with me today, but, but I remember the first time that, that, that we were sort of getting to know each other's families, and this was like 17 years ago, 18 years ago, and uh, I showed up at her house, and I, I drove the drive to Salem Springs, Arkansas, and I knocked on that door to, to who would now my children call Mimi, and I knocked on that door to meet her mom. You want to talk about scary? That was a fearful moment, and uh, I said, hi, I'm... I'm I'm Matt Shackelford, and I thought she hid her disappointment rather well, but 
we got to know each other, and as we were just sort of in the living room, circled up, all her family was around, grandparents were in there, they were in there. She said, look, are you hungry? And she walked me over to the refrigerator that was stocked with Mountain Dew and deli meats. And I was a college kid, and I was saying to myself, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> this is fantastic. Been here 20 minutes, and I own the fridge. And then they took me back and they showed me a back room. Look, you've driven a long ways to come and see our daughter when you're in town to see her and uh, get to know the family. We want this to be your room. This can be your room. You can stay back here. Nice area. One of the better rooms on a spring day. And it's got a TV and you can just go in there, take a nap. What a, what a great room. I've, I've been there 20 minutes. I've got my own room. <laughs> and then I met her dad and he said, hey, I've got tickets to Monday Night Football, Cowboys versus the Giants. And this was back when it was a lot of fun to watch the Cowboys. It's not, uh, <laughs> sorry, I heard that, sorry. I've been here 20 minutes. I've got the fridge, I've got my own room, and I've got Cowboys tickets. But I often wonder, like, what would it be like to go, to go back there not knowing my wife Ashley, not knowing her at all? I'd go to that house on State Line Road in Salem Springs, Arkansas. I'd knock. Hi, I'm Matt Shackelford. She'd say, so what? She wouldn't say it like that. She's, she's very nice. I hope she's not watching today. Um, I think she'd give me the sandwich. She's, she's a nice lady. I don't think I'd get the room in the, her house. And I certainly don't think I'd get Monday night football tickets. Um, but I thought about that. What makes the difference? This is it. When I went to that house on Salem, in Salem Springs on State Line Road, I came and I was accepted in their beloved Ashley. She was a daughter to them. I would become a son to them. Her things would become my things. Her relationships I would also have. Did you know in the New Testament that the phrase that's used most of Christians is not the word Christian? That's only like three times in the whole New Testament. The word that's used more than any other word for being a Christian is the word in Christ. It's like 400 times in the New Testament. In Christ. If you want to be safe, it's being in Christ. Christ. And, and when you're in Christ, that makes all the difference in the world. What God would do for his son, Jesus Christ, he would do for you. The, the commitment he has towards his son, he is now committed to you. The love he has for his son, he now has for you. And if he loves his son, he will most certainly love and care for you. So walk out of this place with that confidence today, beloved. The hymn writer said it so well. Near. So very near to God, nearer I cannot be, yet in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. Dear, so very dear, dearer I cannot be, the love with which God loves his Son, such is his love for me. And for you, for you, and for you. 
and for all who hide in the one who is our refuge, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that there is a hiding place, a place that makes us strong. And I pray over this congregation of believers that we would leave this place girded up with immortality in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that, that we would leave this place if we came feeling weak, if we came feeling discouraged or depressed or defeated, I pray that today we would look to Christ. We would say with the psalmist, he is all the refuge that I need. He is more than enough. He is a strong refuge. He is a faithful refuge. He is a promise-keeping, ever-ready, peace-producing refuge. I pray that, that we would make some new commitments in this room, that we would constantly be with the people of God, experiencing the peace of God, directing one another back to God as a place of refreshment. Father, that the world would look at us through tribulation and they would say it's different. Nothing shakes these people. They have a confidence that we do not understand and they would gain a curiosity to know Jesus. And Father, I pray for my friends who are in this place and who are lost, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are currently not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray today would be the day where you'd break strongholds and produce faith. Father, would you quicken their affections? Would you quicken their desires? I pray today they would just bow and, and they would worship in all of you, that in their hearts they would honor you as Lord, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that they would repent of sin that they've been harboring and they would, they would transfer their trust from their own goodness, their own deeds, and they would look to you, the Savior of their souls. Let them do it today, Lord. Father, whatever you are to accomplish in this place, Lord, we cheer you on in what you're doing. Now help us to trust you, stir up our affections more and more as we see the day of your return approaching. Lord, we just want to say it. We love you. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for always rescuing your people. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.